Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. Um, we have got some interesting guests, or no, an interesting guest with us, Clint Roberts. You are a philosopher extraordinary. Are you just a philosopher at large here at the Credo House? Yes, at large and in charge. At large and in charge. So why did you almost say extraordinary and then you decided not to say it? Did you decide he wasn't extraordinary? Well, I just haven't or... gotten that far He yet thought better him. of it. I, we'll have, let the audience decide. You know, I've got my opinions and I've just heard and I don't go off rumors with, uh, with you. It's just you've got to figure out whether or not you're going to be able to pull this off. I don't want you to set the expectations so high that I'm doomed to disappoint. Well, thank you for joining us. You are, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I teach many classes related to philosophy from many schools. Intro to philosophy, critical thinking, ethics, religion. Are you a critical thinker? Basket weaving, <laughs> dolphin grooming. Very uh, nice. Most of those at, at any rate. Are you a critical thinker? Mostly. You try to be. Is right. it hard to get your students to be critical thinkers? Uh, if by hard you mean near to impossible? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Basically, he means it's hard to get them to think. Yeah. The critical part is, you know, a, kind of a pipe dream. But Well, we have got problem passages we're continuing to deal with, problem issues. This one we are starting in John chapter 2. And as, as you guys know, when we get to the book of John, John is a rather unique book in a lot of ways. I think 92% of John is original. And what I mean by that is that 92% of what he says is not contained within what we call the synoptics, uh, the gospels that see the same way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why they're called the synoptics. But John has uh, some original stories, and this is one of the original stories. And he goes through uh, the seven miracles of Jesus, and this is uh, the first of the miracles that John records. And this is uh, the wedding at Cana, and this is where you have this uh, situation where Christ is at a wedding, and it says, um, his mother and his servants are coming to him, and his mother is intriguing him to perform a sign. Now, in verse 6 of chapter 2, it says there were six water pots set forth there by the Jewish custom for purification, containing 20 or 3 gallons each. Jesus said, fill the water pots, and they filled them up, and he said to them, draw some water out now, and he took it to the head waiter, and the head waiter took it to the appropriate, appropriate people. And the water had become wine. And then afterwards, some servants come up to him and say in verse 10, 
every man serves the good uh, good wine first. And when the men have drunk freely, then that which is the poor wine, you have the good wine until now you have kept Jesus. And so we have this extraordinary miracle, and I think it's a problem passage. This is the only reason we bring this up is because uh, it's a difficult thing when we talk about Jesus turning water into wine, at least for a lot of people today. A lot of people would look at this and say, how could Jesus do this? Uh, This uh, possibly was something different than what we think. Maybe it's a grape juice that he turned it into. Maybe it is something other than an alcoholic beverage. But guys, we do have problems in our country, we do have problems, and there's going to be people listening to this that have problems with alcohol in their families, uh, loved ones, and themselves have problems with alcohol. And so what we find is that this odd situation where Jesus seems to be a head waiter. I, I look at this as he, he's not a the waiter or the bartender, but he's actually the brewer of the wine. Is, is, is this a problem? He's a vintner. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose it is in many respects. Let's, by the way, let's just get on the record something that we need to state up front, and that is that whatever we may say in the next few minutes, we are very clear that the Bible condemns drunkenness. Yes. <clears throat> we are all agreed that uh, uh, there is no excuse, there is no uh, rationalization uh, for intoxication. Uh, the Bible is very clear, do not be drunk with wine, Paul says. Uh, the book of Proverbs is very, very vivid in its description of the destructive effects of excessive use of alcohol. But the question obviously remains, is there a place within Christian freedom for the, mod- the use of alcohol in moderation? Um, and that is, a, that is an issue on which Christians really divide. They get mad. They get angry. And uh, as you said, Michael, the, you know, the fact that Jesus would have turned this water into wine at this celebration, this wedding uh, feast uh, does prove problematic for some people. You know, I think of uh, of uh, John or Luke chapter seven, verse thirty four, where uh, the religious leaders are condemning Jesus, and uh, they said, "Well, you condemned John the Baptist because uh, he wouldn't. He only ate locusts and wouldn't drink anything, and now you condemn Jesus because and call him a drunken uh, or a, a drunk and a, a glutton." So evidently, uh, because Jesus himself partook in some of these celebrations and uh, imbibed wine, uh, whatever the nature it may be, we'll have to determine that. He was being accused of being um, somebody who overate and overdrank. Uh, some people have looked at this and said, well, the problem has to be in our interpretation of it. We must see in that day that wine was something very different. It was something that was a drink that people had because the water um, the water was, uh, was not good to drink on its own. Therefore, we would always have a little wine with stuff in order to make it to where it was no longer contaminated or hurtful. And so whenever we see wine and Jesus turning water into wine, uh, I've got this, uh, this quote from a conservative biblical uh, commentator or theologian that says, wine today has a much higher alcohol content than it did in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament times, uh, when one would drink, there would be a 20 to 1 parts of water to wine so that they would not consume 
an alcohol, alcoholic beverage like we do today. There was a book uh, years ago that I read called The Wrath of Grapes. And basically, it was a, the, the writer was wanting to find any way to lighten the impact, you know, of this, of this passage. So, and not just this passage, but also the supper, you know. And, and, and so he had five or six different theories that people had to sort of resolve this. One of them was alcoholic content, just way lower one of them was almost, you could call it a miraculous transformation, uh, uh, almost a, you know, spur of the moment transubstantiation, if you like, uh, into something non-alcoholic. And then a couple of other ones. And even even though I was, I didn't know, I had never really considered this at the time, and I didn't know much about it. Something about that book, something told me, hmm, I'm not sure I buy any of this. Hmm. But because I could tell that the operative premise of the book was, Anything to anything to get us off the hook in terms of having to admit this is just wine. Yeah. And so, as you say, you know, the historical circumstances are just what they are. And, you know, we wouldn't want to read into the, that circumstance sort of a contemporary industrialized alcohol complex with sophisticated distilleries and so on. But isn't, isn't um, alcohol of every sort just part of the context of the ancient world? As long as people have existed, they've figured out ways with grains and fruits and everything else to manufacture, uh, you know, alcohol. It's sort of the oldest medicine, all-encompassing stimulant that there ever was, it seems. Well, let me let me tr- try to provide the unpluggedness here that uh, a lot of people discuss whenever they do get into this, because I see this a lot more in younger generations as well. Not quite so much in my generation, but people that... Uh, that are younger Christians, they are very much into alcohol in a way that the older generation wasn't, uh, so much so that uh, you have uh, these uh, uh, single malt parties that you have in Christian communities sometimes to where everybody brings their favorite single malt. You also have a lot of uh, Christians that are out there that are into bar ministries. I had a friend that was at seminary that would travel from bar to bar and that's what he would do is uh, engage in those contexts and have a drink, have a mixed drink, uh, and l- be able to, from his perspective, talk to people that he wouldn't be able to talk to beforehand. But there does seem to be kind of a movement now towards kind of a liberation uh, of sorts towards and, alcohol. And this has caused, uh, and I think with some justifiable alarm, because I, 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 I'm afraid that at times there are uh, people in the Christian community who want to think, well, how far can I push the envelope? How close can I come to the edge before I cross over into sinful uh, intoxication? And um, I, I don't think that's a good approach to take. Um, you know, the, I have very, very close friends who are teetotalers. They embrace total abstinence. I respect the position. I think it's a perfectly legitimate option if somebody chooses to, to embrace that. Um, they, they do it for a variety of reasons. Some say because they don't like the taste of it. Others because they're concerned about the example they're setting for their children. Mm-hmm. Others because they are in uh, 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 relationships that would be uh, damaged um, otherwise. Um, and then some are just so concerned with the um, over-intoxication of American culture at large and the um, you know the number of DUIs and the people who have uh, died from 
alcoholic poisoning or they've been killed on our highways. And, and so there are perfectly legitimate reasons uh, for people to live in total abstinence. What I don't find in Scripture is a justification for them to insist that everybody else must do so. Mm. You know, I think Christians are absolutely free to totally abstain from alcohol in any quantity. I don't think the Bible says they're free to insist, excuse me, that others must do so as well. They will talk about the differences uh, often. R.A. Torrey is one of the famous people who brings this up that you find quoted uh, as talking about new wine. Jesus turned it into new wine. Since it was new wine, it was unfermented wine. Um, And so it's, again, this kind of idea that whenever you do subscribe to this, probably because of some family history, and let let me be frank, my dad was a very heavy drinker, and it caused trouble my entire life uh, with uh, my uh, family, with my mother, and it was something that is is part embedded into my childhood memories. I personally don't drink. Um, it, well, I, it's not that I stay away from it completely, but it's just not something that's part of my lifestyle. I don't like alcohol, and that's basically what it comes down to with me is a taste issue. However, there are people who do look at this and say, we have got to somehow figure out how to make the Bible against wine. But the problem is, and this is the unplugged part, is that the the Bible seems to suggest that wine is a gift of God. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking uh, one passage in Isaiah chapter 25 where uh, the prophet is describing the consummation when God will uh, wipe away every tear and we will live forever and ever on the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the blessings that is described is in verse 6 of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. So here, here we have a portrayal of the feast and the celebration that's coming in the consummation. And it seems as if a well-aged wine um, is at the very heart of it as a blessing from God to his people. Well, and not only that, and here's the, here's the one that may cause a lot of problems. And this is the one I, I want to talk about a little bit because I don't, I don't get it. Okay, you guys help me out here. Um, the Bible says that the wine is a gift to men. Um, it talks about it in Genesis chapter 27, verse 28. But in Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15, it talks about these many gifts, you know, including food and including enjoyment being given to men. But also it says this, Wine that gladdens the hearts of men. Now, gladden yeah. the, in fact, the heart of men. Before you said that, I actually had turned to that passage. I'm looking <laughs> at it right now. Yes. Well, what do we do with that? I mean, is can can wine gladden a heart? I mean, what does it mean to gladden a heart? And where do you have this line that we're talking about where we're saying, all right, drunkenness, definitely wrong. Uh, being a drunkard, definitely wrong. But how can we say wine can gladden the heart of men? Well, we heard just in the beginning the disclaimer, hey, you know, this can be dangerous. We're, we're opposed to the idea that you can, you can be a booze hound and somehow uh, baptize it in whiskey and say it's all good. On the other hand, here are these passages 
that speak of it almost as a as a comfort food and a medicine, and mm. which I think in the ancient world it sort of was all those things. And you have both these things represented. I'm I'm reminded of a quote of a very fine thinker, um, fictional character. It was Homer Simpson, after all, <laughs> who once said... This is unplugged, folks. <laughs> ...who raised a toast and said, to alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> and, of course, you have these passages. I mean, on the one hand, it's a mocker. It's a brawler. And, and in real life, we know that it destroys people. It kills people. It, it's a real issue, and not just here. I mean, you know, I've been to places overseas where they're plagued by by alcoholism in the culture. And you think this culture would be better off without any of it. And there's just the common wisdom that says, look, if you can't moderate, abstain. But human nature is such that we, we don't moderate well, right, with food, drink, or anything. We just tend to go over the top. And while you can go over the top and be gluttonous and over-consuming with anything, not all things are equal in terms of their uh, impact and the price that you pay. But it right? still says it gladdens people's heart. What if what if I came in and you guys uh, saw me and I'm drinking a beer, I'm drinking a single malt, whatever that is. I really don't know what that is. I tried to look up and try You're to really figure out the difference malt. between the single and double <laughs> malt because that movement that's going on. But I had that, and you said, Michael, have you been drinking? I said, yes, I have. And I said, um, but I'm not drunk, but my heart is gladdened. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm enough to where I'm gladdened in my heart, mm-hmm. or in the Ecclesiastes version that is something similar. It is, it makes the heart merry. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm at a merry point. <laughs> you could say it takes the edge off. Yeah, uh, of course, somebody, uh, somebody who's a teetotaler might want to push back and say, look, he's, only ta- he's simply talking about the aesthetic blessings of wine, the taste, uh, the, uh, uh, the flavor, the, the varieties that you can um, uh, enjoy, and that it has nothing to do with any intoxicating effects upon the human mind or the human body. I suppose that argument could be made. Um, but evidently, there, the, it would seem as if if this is talking about some level of physiological impact of uh, the wine, that there is a difference between being gladdened and being uh, somehow uh, incapacitated or, or, you cro- or crossing a line where you lose control, you lose the capacity to, uh, to engage in normal conversation. Um, I, I, the phrase that I have often used with people when they ask, uh, whether the Bible permits the use of alcoholic beverages in moderation, I say, look, whatever decision you come to on that, here's a principle of the Word of God that can be justified throughout Scripture. Be ruthlessly clear-headed. Be ruthlessly clear-headed. Uh, if a person can uh, engage and participate in wine or have a beer or a mixed drink and still be ruthlessly clear-headed and not in any way physically incapacitated, then it seems to me the Bible grants them that freedom. I'm just trying to figure out the difference between ruthlessly clear-headed and gladdened. Well, I'm glad when I'm ruthlessly clear-headed. So. <laughs> um, yeah, let me throw out a couple of other texts. Just okay. that, that, for example, when, um, when God brought the people of Israel into the promised land and he's describing the blessings that they can enjoy in, you know, we typically describe it as a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, there was a lot more flowing than just that. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26, he says, When you arrive there, 
spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep, or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. Mm. And then again later in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 14, he's describing again the blessings in the promised land. There will be curds from the herd, milk from the flock, the fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. So here we have, again, God saying, I've given you all things to enjoy, uh, all things to make you glad. But I think he also says, remain ruthlessly clear-headed. Self-control is essential. Uh, Drunkenness is absolutely forbidden. Um, So there is a, you know, the reason why a lot of Christians don't like to hear this it feels too slippery. Yeah. It feels too subjective. Yeah. They want a hard and fast line in the sand. And that is why they say, look, total abstinence. I'm, I don't have to worry about this at all. I don't have to question. I don't have to know what gladden the heart means. I don't have to know what it means to be ruthlessly clear headed because I've determined to totally abstain. And I think that's a fine thing to do. I have, I have no objections to that. But for the person who in the exercise of their liberty wants to enjoy some of the, the things that God has made available to us, um, there is a subjectivity to it. There is a fuzziness in terms of determining when the glad heart has uh, crossed a boundary into a level of intoxication. And that makes people really nervous. And I understand that. And I think we need to be very careful in how we uh, advocate Christian liberty, that we do not push people across a line uh, from, you know, enjoyment and gladheartedness into an area where they're going to be a danger to themselves and to others. The uh, original passage when we're talking about turning water into wine, uh, the best I can tell from from wine in the ancient world, the Baker Encyclopedia. It's a it's a, a encyclopedia on this issue. It does talk about this, and it talks about new wine. And new wine was the wine that the apostles were drinking in Acts chapter 2. And they uh, were accused of being full of sweet wine. And uh, that obviously would have alcoholic contents as well. They would say here in this encyclopedia that the reason why water was added to it was because it was so much higher content than we actually have today. And so uh, talked about wine actually being able to start a fire on some of these things. But I think, Sam, what you have said to kind of close us out is this. There is this, there is this line, and it can be crossed. And in everything, um, we, we have to be prudent in that we are enjoying God's gifts, but we understand that it can be abused. Absolutely. And uh, again, let's remember— If there was no alcoholic content to the wine uh, that was used in the New Testament, it pretty much renders uh, meaningless the exhortations to avoid drunkenness. Yeah. If you couldn't get intoxicated by it, what's the point of saying do not be drunk with wine? And what was happening in Corinth that we read about in 1 Corinthians 11, where some of those who had abused the wine of the Lord's table had become intoxicated. So it seems as if that uh, the alcoholic content was there, it was present. But the New Testament authors um, uh, want to uh, uphold Christian liberty and the enjoyment of God's good gifts if they're received with thanksgiving um, without leading us uh, to cross a line into the loss of self-control and some of the more dangerous things that alcohol can bring about in our own lives and in society as a whole. 
Folks, we love being on Bot Radio Network every Saturday at 1. But Theology Unplugged needs your help. In order to exist, we need $800 a month. And we need it to come from people here who listen to Bot Radio. So if you would, and if you want us to stay on Bot, please go to our website and donate monthly. Click on the donate button, put in the notes that this is for Theology Unplugged. We thank you so much for your support. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House, a theological hub and coffee shop located at 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma. For more information on the Credo House or to support the ongoing work of its theological ministry, please visit www.credohouse.org.